This is Get Ready for Sunday, a weekly podcast reviewing the scripture readings for the Sunday Masses in Roman Catholic churches on January 23, 2022. On the church's calendar, that's the third Sunday in Ordinary Time. I'm Deacon Mark from Corpus Christi Catholic Church in Tucson, Arizona. I'm here to share some background and context information about the coming weekend's scripture, It's gathered from the work of genuine scripture scholars and thoughtful commentators and offered in the hope that it will make the Mass more meaningful to you. But fair warning, all this information is sifted through my own tiny brain. If you'd like to have your eyes on the scripture readings as I talk about them, simply go to the U.S. Conference of Catholic Bishops website. It's usccb.org. In the top navigation bar, select Prayer and Worship, and from the menu that drops down from there, choose Daily Readings Calendar. All today's scripture passages share a common theme. It is about the provocative nature of God's Word. If we take it seriously, we come to know that the comfort we all seek from it is accompanied by challenge and encouragement to grow towards true fullness of life. In the first reading, just hearing the scripture read causes all present to weep openly. In the responsorial, the psalmist declares that God's word establishes life itself. The passage from St. Paul tells the Corinthians that they must see themselves as an entirely new form of life. And in the gospel, Luke's Jesus proclaims that the promises contained in Scripture are not just historical niceties, but are active in changing the present-day world. That first reading comes from the book of Nehemiah. It is one of two closely related books as both Catholic and Protestant Bibles are organized, the other book being the book of Ezra. In the Jewish canon of Scripture, the two are treated as a single book. There is ongoing scholarship on the questions of the book's background and authorship. The close relationship exists because both men were active in the same period of Israel's history, the post-exilic period when the people of Judah were freed from captivity in Babylon by Persian king Cyrus the Great after he defeated the Babylonians. Ezra was a Jewish scribe and priest. After being allowed to enter Judea by the Persians, Ezra is known for organizing an effort to rebuild the city walls of Jerusalem. This was thwarted by Samaritan interference that caused the Persian rulers to tear down all that had been erected and burn the new city gates. Nehemiah, also a Jew born in Babylon during the exile, held the office of cup-bearer to the king, Artaxerxes. This was a position of great trust and authority at court, with the responsibility for providing safe food and drink for the one who sat on the throne. Nehemiah was sent to be governor of then-Persian-ruled Judea following the end of Ezra's attempts to refortify Jerusalem. Nehemiah himself oversaw the refortification of the city, which allowed Ezra to concentrate on restoration of the temple and the reinstatement of the Torah's authority. You see, a remnant of Judeans had avoided being displaced by the Babylonian conquest and had remained in the city. During the years of exile, 
These families intermarried with their pagan neighbors, which was against the rules in the Torah, and developed a hybrid of paganism slash Judaism. We only read from this work once in our three-year cycle. The passage recounts the day that Ezra gathered all the Judeans to listen to a reading of the Torah, all five books, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. Get comfy, because here comes a rather lengthy reading from the book of Nehemiah. Ezra the priest brought the law before the assembly, which consisted of men, women, and those children old enough to understand. Standing at one end of the open place that was before the water gate, he read out of the book from daybreak until midday in the presence of the men, the women, and those children old enough to understand. And all the people listened attentively to the book of the law. Ezra the scribe stood on a wooden platform that had been made for the occasion. He opened the scroll so that all the people might see it for he was standing higher up than any of the people, and as he opened it, all the people rose. Ezra blessed the Lord, the great God, and all the people, their hands raised high, answered, Amen, Amen. Then they bowed down and prostrated themselves before the Lord, their faces to the ground. Ezra read plainly from the book of the law of God interpreting it so that all could understand what was read. Then Nehemiah, that is, his excellency, and Ezra the priest's scribe, and the Levites who were instructing the people, said to all the people, Today is holy to the Lord your God. Do not be sad and do not weep. For all the people were weeping as they heard the words of the law. He said further, Go, eat rich foods and drink sweet drinks and allot portions to those who had nothing prepared. For today is holy to our Lord. Do not be saddened this day, for rejoicing in the Lord must be your strength. The Word of the Lord. Why all the weeping, you might ask? One might presume that the weeping noted in the text comes from either shame at the realization of the degree to which the remnant population had strayed, or from joy that the centuries-old tradition was being reinstated. Alternatively, I suppose, some of the weeping might have been the result of having to stand for most of the day listening to the entire Torah being read by a single voice and commented on by that same single voice. This was indeed intended to be a glorious day. God had promised his people after the exile he would restore them as a nation and as a people. Faithful to his promise, they are now back home. What transpired over the seventy years in exile was that some Judeans forgot the precepts of the Torah. The remnants who remained behind also forgot. Ezra, through the proclamation of the word of God, led the people in covenant renewal. He reminded them of their special covenant with God and how God had remained faithful. Ezra tells them the day is to be a celebration with a large feast. They are once again home, and once again connected in a special way to God. The responsorial psalm reminds us that God's word, his commandments and ordinances, are intended to bring us to abundant life, life to the fullest, 
Its component parts stretch from the time of the psalmist to Jesus' own teachings. Carondelet's sister Mary McGlone walks us through the stanzas with these words. Taken from the 19th Psalm, this is a wonderful response to the first reading. We can pray this in union with the people who listened to Ezra. When the song sings of the law, it is actually referring to the whole Torah, the narratives of Israel's early history and covenant relationship with God. When we sing of the goodness of the law, we are giving thanks for the covenant. Our first two stanzas sing of the law as a kind of wisdom that enlarges our soul. Appreciation of the law is described as a clear path to peace and justice. The third stanza praises the fear of the Lord. That phrase refers to the awe we feel when we recognize God's presence in nature, in others, in the scriptures, or in prayer. The fourth stanza reflects the psalmist's sense of reciprocity in relationship with God. As we sing of the joy we receive from the Word of God, we also pray that God will be pleased with our song. It is the refrain, Your words, Lord, are spirit and light, that comes from the sixth chapter of John's Gospel, the Bread of Life Discourse. The words praised here are the teachings of Jesus. The response to the Torah and the response to Jesus, whose teachings complete the divine precepts, are joined together here. This is the Responsorial Psalm of the Day. Your words, Lord, are spirit and life. The law of the Lord is perfect, refreshing the soul. The decree of the Lord is trustworthy, giving wisdom to the simple. Your words, Lord, are spirit and life. The precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The command of the Lord is clear, enlightening the eye. Your words, Lord, are spirit and life. The fear of the Lord is pure, enduring forever. The ordinances of the Lord are true, all of them just. Your words, Lord, are spirit and life. Let the words of my mouth and the thought of my heart find favor before you, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. Your words, Lord, are spirit and life. Our second reading is a continuation of St. Paul's first letter to the Corinthians. The Corinthians are a very diverse multicultural community comprised of Greeks, Romans, Jews, and pagans, as an early Christian community, the Corinthians were a very divided group of believers and had a bit of trouble just trusting one another. There was a competitive atmosphere that made its way into the area of the spiritual gifts that were being distributed among them. Much like the so-called prosperity gospel running around these days, many equated having a particular gift with being superior to others in the community. One woman with whom I've worked and who has been teaching and researching spiritual gifts among Catholics for more than 20 years puts it this way. If you think having a particular gift makes you special among Christians, you might as well brag about having a library card. They are freely given to anyone. As was the case last week, this week's passage is Paul's effort for the Corinthians to appreciate that diversity and differences 
are more than just okay. They are the Spirit's way of enriching the entire body. Paul provides very descriptive imagery, that of the members of the church being members of Christ's living body. In my humble opinion, this image is one of Paul's greatest contributions to the church and has been invaluable to millions throughout centuries. Paul understands, and wants his readers to understand, that the Christian community is made up of individuals who are called into it by the one and same Spirit. In baptism, all become part of the one body in Christ. Yet the one body does not destroy the gifts of individuals who make it up. Rather, it sustains and amplifies those gifts, bringing the gift-bearers into the fullness of life through their unique contributions to the life of and to the mission of the body. For Catholics, there are two principal ways we experience what the Church has called for centuries the mystical body of Christ, in the Eucharist and in the people of the Church. They work in balance. The one feeds the other. From age to age, then, the other carries forward Christ's mission into its own small segment of space and time. Again, get comfortable. This passage also is rather longer than usual. This is the longer of two choices that the presider or preacher has today. You might encounter the abbreviated version at whatever Mass you attend, but I'm not shying away from the entire selection. This is a reading from Paul's first letter to the Corinthians. Brothers and sisters, as a body is one, though it has many parts, and all the parts of the body, though many, are one body, so also Christ. For in one spirit we were all baptized into one body, whether Jews or Greeks, slaves or free persons, and we were all given to drink of one spirit. Now the body is not a single part, but many. If a foot should say, Because I am not a hand, I do not belong to the body, it does not for this reason belong any less to the body. Or if an ear should say, Because I am not an eye, I do not belong to the body, it does not for this reason belong any less to the body. If the whole body were an eye, where would the hearing be? If the whole body were hearing, where would the sense of smell be? But as it is, God placed the parts, each one of them, in the body as he intended. If they were all one part, where would the body be? But as it is, there are many parts, yet one body. The eye cannot say to the hand, I do not need you, nor again the head to the feet, I do not need you. Indeed, the parts of the body that seem to be weaker are all the more necessary, and those parts of the body that we consider less honorable we surround with great honor, and our less presentable parts are treated with greater propriety, whereas our more presentable parts do not need this. But God has so constructed the body as to give greater honor to a part that is without it, so that there may be no division in the body, but that the parts 
may have the same concern for one another. If one part suffers, all the parts suffer with it. If one part is honored, all the parts share its joy. Now you are Christ's body, and individually parts of it. Some people God has designated in the church to be first apostles, second prophets, third teachers, then mighty deeds, then gifts of healing, assistance, administration, and varieties of tongues. Are all apostles? Are all prophets? Are all teachers? Do all work mighty deeds? Do all have gifts of healing? Do all speak in tongues? Do all interpret? The word of the Lord. Told you it was long. Sunday's gospel is made of two widely separated passages from Luke. We start with the only formal literary prologue among the gospels. This device might escape our attention today, but its effect at the time of Luke was to place his work at home among contemporary Greek and Roman works. I often sigh with exhaustion when reading Paul. His wordy, run-on style can be tough to decipher. But this Lucan prologue leaves Paul in the dust. In our English translation, this opening takes up four full verses, uses 72 words, but forms just a single sentence. From it, we do learn much, including that Luke is clearly a second, maybe even a third-generation Christian. Scripture historians place the writing of the gospel between the years 80 and 90 AD. Luke makes it a major stated goal to bring more order and understandability to the existing scriptures. As he says, to write it down in an orderly sequence for his readers. Immediately as today's passage is constructed, the lectionary violates that orderliness by skipping over first Luke's long infancy narrative, then the only story in all the Gospels about Jesus as a boy, then the account of John the Baptist and Jesus being baptized, and then the 40 days of preparation and temptation Jesus underwent in the desert. Leaving all that out, the lectionary plunks us down at the point of Jesus returning from the desert and entering the synagogue in Nazareth for Sabbath prayer and teaching. Here, then, is the day's reading from the Holy Gospel according to Luke. Since many have undertaken to compile a narrative of the events that have been fulfilled among us, just as those who were eyewitnesses from the beginning and ministers of the word have handed them down to us, I too have decided, after investigating everything accurately anew, to write it down in an orderly sequence for you, most excellent Theophilus, so that you may realize the certainty of the teachings you have received. Jesus returned to Galilee in the power of the Spirit, and news of him spread throughout the whole region. He taught in their synagogues and was praised by all. He came to Nazareth, where he had grown up, and went, according to his custom, into the synagogue on the Sabbath day. He stood up to read, and was handed a scroll of the prophet Isaiah. 
He unrolled the scroll and found the passage where it was written, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because he has anointed me to bring glad tidings to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to captives and recovery of sight to the blind, to let the oppressed go free, and to proclaim a year acceptable to the Lord. Rolling up the scroll, he handed it back to the attendant and sat down, and the eyes of all in the synagogue looked intently at him. He said to them, Today, this scripture passage is fulfilled in your hearing. The Gospel of the Lord. With that final line, the gauntlet has hit the ground. Jesus has put the challenge forward. Now this is a bit of a cliffhanger. We will see the reaction of those present in the synagogue in next Sunday's Gospel. Luke was an excellent historian. To write his Gospel, he clearly investigated numerous sources thoroughly. Many biblical scholars propose that one of his sources was Mary, the mother of Jesus. That would explain why we have such descriptive stories about the infancy and the youth of Jesus. Luke was known as a traveling companion of St. Paul, who was another source, as were Barnabas and Peter. Mark and Matthew had already written their Gospels, so it makes sense that Luke would have used these references. The Greek word for orderly is akribos, which means accurate or faithful to the event. Luke stresses throughout that his account is based on eyewitness testimony. Luke's Gospel and the Acts of the Apostles by Luke are addressed to Theophilus. The name means, quite literally, friend of God. There is a lot of debate about Theophilus. Was this a real person? Or does it generally refer to anyone who wants to follow God? One clue may be the title. We translate it as Most Excellent Theophilus. Most Excellent. In Greek, Kratiste. That is a title for royalty, or a governor, or a leader, or some figure who holds an office of prestige, power, and esteem. Luke addresses Theophilus in that way. From that clue, it seems more probable than not that Theophilus was an actual person. But the question has never finally been resolved. Whether Theophilus is a particular individual, or the name is a literary device to indicate anyone who reads and appreciates Luke's work, what is clear is that Luke wanted us to know his work is accurate and truthful. In the second part of this Gospel selection, Luke describes Jesus returning to Galilee filled with the power of the Holy Spirit. During his travels from the wilderness experience to Nazareth in Galilee, he has already developed a reputation and a following. His next notable stop is this synagogue in Nazareth. In Greek, a synagoge means a gathering place or a gathering together. 
Synagogues were local houses of worship, not led by priests, but instead by scholars such as Pharisees or rabbis. In Jesus' day, Pharisees were most often the teachers in synagogues. Not just anyone could read Jewish scripture and lead worship in a synagogue. By the time the public ministry of Jesus brings him to his hometown, it appears he was already regarded as a rabbi, a teacher of the tradition. In a synagogue, there are typically two readings, one from the Torah and the other from the Tanakh, usually from one of the prophets. After the readings, the rabbi, in this case Jesus, sits down to give a teaching. In this culture, the teacher sat to indicate his authority. It's reflected even today when our bishops are seated in their chair, which in Latin is cathedra. They are seated in that chair for important moments of ministry and teaching. Now, do you know why we call it a cathedral? It has a cathedra in it. From his seat, Jesus says, Today this scripture passage is fulfilled in your hearing. That's a gauntlet, you ask? I suppose it might have taken a moment to be recognized as such by his audience. Jesus has taken the words of Isaiah out of the comfortable past tense and put them at the center of what it means to live as a child of God today. Is he saying he is the anointed one who will accomplish all that liberating work? How so? How dare he? Stay tuned. Next Sunday's Gospel will go into the reactions that Jesus got after issuing his challenge on this day. That's enough. This is the part where I wish you the openness to recognize God's grace working in your life during this coming week and the courage and energy or whatever you need to respond to that grace. I hereby do that. So you do your part too, okay? I plan to do this again next week and I hope you will join me. May God bless you abundantly.